The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, we start a new book. It's exciting. It's the book of Nehemiah, and we'll be in this book for nine weeks. It'll be our summer study. And uh, as I was preparing for this book, I was, you know, we're, we're walking through the summer and finding summer jobs, making sure that our kids aren't just sitting around looking at their phone all summer and so it reminded me of a time when I, not that my kids would do that. You don't need to look at my kids. They're, they're perfect. Uh, but uh, it reminded me of my summer job. I think it was the summer before college. Either that or it was the summer after my first year in college. But I scored the big one because I had inside connection. My, my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife, Dana, her, her dad owned a construction company. And at that age, you knew the big paying jobs were in the construction company. And obviously, I was equipped for that, knowing my personality and nature. So I said, hey, you think you could lay me a job with your dad and make, get me one of those high-paying jobs? And she worked it out. She got me in. And so I heard before I actually showed up that I was going to be mixing brick. I was like, that's going to be easy. I, I've seen those machines out there uh, that I'm assuming was a m brick mixer. And so uh, I'll just work the brick mixer and s make big bucks. I'm like, this is going to be easy. So... I show up the first day on the job. It was centenary. You probably know the beautiful building. You can see my fingerprints all over. It's just gorgeous. It was the far western building. I think it was a library or something. I can't remember. Actually, it didn't last very long. But So I came, and, and my father-in-law or my, this guy, I was really wanting to impress him uh, dating his daughter. Uh, so he walks me across the job site, and we turn this corner, and oh, my word, a sea of bricks, and they were thousands of orange bricks, thousands of gray bricks, and thousands of red bricks. And he begins to explain to me, these bricks were ordered, and an error was made when they were delivered. They were delivered segregated by their color, and they are supposed to be mixed and blended. Each palette should have a blend of all three colors on the palette. And I began to learn, I'm the brick mixer. <laughs> and so there was a pallet of thousands of orange bricks, thousands of gray bricks, and thousands of red bricks. And my job was to make sure that the bricks were blended in their color. And then the pallet would be lifted up to the real guys who knew what they were doing. And they would have a blend of colors. And I turned, and I'm like, well, then what is this machine? He says, that makes mortar for them. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm the brick mixer. And so it was a long, hot summer of doing this and shredding the gloves and shredding my fingers. Actually, I only lasted two weeks. So I still got the girl, though. So I don't know how this worked out. You know, we got married. So it worked out good. I, I used my connections to get out of the job that I, she got me into. Um, anyway, so uh, we are learning in the book of Nehemiah that we are all laborers. I discovered that day I was a brick laborer in this study. We're going to discover that we are all laborers in the kingdom. And we need to understand our role because it will affect how well we perform. If we go in thinking this is some easy task, we will not last. And so we need to understand that in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to learn that we are all participants, those of us who have trusted in Christ, 
when he brings in our lives restoration, he then enlists us with his authority. He hires us and says, now I want you to labor to bring restoration to others. And that restoration that is found only in Christ is coming in phases. The first phase is uh, immediate spiritual restoration. Proper worship is restored in our lives. And we're going to see all this in Nehemiah. That when we trust Christ as the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins, it's not Jesus plus religion, it's not Jesus plus works, it's not Jesus plus anything. It's realizing nothing restores me except the blood of Jesus. And when I receive the incredible grace gift of the blood of Jesus, I am restored. God is put back in proper position in my life, and everything flows from that. Now, that's immediate. That's proper worship restored immediately. But then we see we still live in a messed up place, and we still have messed up feelings and attitudes and desires that are not right. But one day, when Christ comes back, he's going to finish it ultimate restoration. He's going to do what Nehemiah couldn't do that we're going to see. He's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth, a new kingdom, a city of God with God's worshipers on this earth where they are properly worshiping him. So where does the book of Nehemiah fit in? Nehemiah in the story of the Bible is where God's people have been kicked out of their land because they have sinned and rebelled against God. That's called the exile. They had been in Babylon the northern part of their people had been moved to Assyria. And Nehemiah is, is in that time where 70 years previous, some people had, been, had returned to the land by God's incredible provision. I'm fast-forwarding thousands of years here. Read the book. It's going to help you. And, and what Nehemiah does is he says, hey, we're going to see. He says, hey, what's going on in our homeland? And we're going to look into what's going on. And what we're going to see is Nehemiah is going to return and he's going to get actively involved in laboring to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And you can see where my mind was as I went to that illustration, but he's going to physically labor to rebuild the wall. Now, for Nehemiah, it's never just about the wall. For Nehemiah, the wall was just to help God's people return to the city that God had said, dwell here Worship me here at the temple. Because their sin, everything was in, was in ruins. Their, their city is in shambles. They're not properly worshiping God because they've brought devastation upon themselves. And Nehemiah never loses sight that God's will is that God's people worship him. And so he leaves the, the palace as the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He leaves the palace... And at great cost to himself, goes and engages in the work of bringing, of restoring God's people to worship. Now, in the rest of the story of the Bible, we see Nehemiah, spoiler alert, the end of Nehemiah, he doesn't bring restoration. He does a great job in and of himself, but ultimately, the whole story of the Bible tells us, he points us to the one who does bring restoration, Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to begin a study of Nehemiah. And here's the, here's the idea. When you look at the slide, you see our own skyline, the city of Shreveport. And, and if we're honest, we realize, man, our city is a mess. And I'm not talking politics. I'm talking the people of Shreveport are a mess. 
And if we get a little more personal, we, we look at our own lives and we, our own families, and we realize, man, we're a mess. Our churches are in a mess. Our, our communities are in a mess. We're a people who need to be restored. And the call is this. Christ brings restoration. And if you've been restored by Christ, you are enlisted to labor to bring restoration to this city one person at a time through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to study Nehemiah for help, for wisdom, to understand how do we do this? What's the nature of it? We're going to see his heart today. What is the heart of the laborer? We're going to see next week the opposition that we face as we try to do this. We're going to see the source of strength is the joy of the Lord. We're going to see how we must persevere. We're going to see all this in the book of Nehemiah. It's going to, prov- it's going to provide for us wisdom, the wisdom of God, as we join Christ in the labor of bringing gospel restoration to people in our lives. So let's begin in Nehemiah 1, chapter 1. We see the setting. This is not parable. This is not psalm. This is, this is fact, history being recorded. Nehemiah 1, 1. There's a real man, real people. This really happened. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. All right, let me just get the setting. We're in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. This is 445 B.C., about November, December. What happens? In verse 2, Nehemiah has this chance encounter. We know it's a divine appointment. It says that Hanani, one of my brothers, which means he's a Jew, and some men from Judah, that was a southern portion of the kingdom of God. We know of it today as the land that we call Israel. The southern half of it was called Judah. Anyway, it says that they, some of them, a brother, a Jew, came from Judah, and he says, I asked them concerning our people, the Jews, who had escaped and who had survived captivity. They had been drug off to Babylon. They had come back to Jerusalem. And he's saying, I asked about them, and I asked about our city, Jerusalem. Now, why is this such a big deal? Jerusalem is the place that God said, that's where I will dwell in the temple. Remember, Hebrews talked about that tabernacle, that place of worship. It was a tent structure. The holy place was in the middle. The priests went in there, offered sacrifices to to cover the sins of the people. The glory of God dwelled in the middle of the Holy of Holies. The people were able to properly worship God, God with that tabernacle. Well, that was a moving structure. They move through the wilderness, and 40 years later, they finally get into this land of their promised land. We call it modern-day Israel. They were in there. God said, in Jerusalem, that'll be the capital, and you're going to get rid of that portable structure, and you're going to make a permanent temple. So God's providing for them as a people to properly worship him. Well, all that was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The people were removed 150 years prior to Nehemiah writing this, all that happened. 70 years prior to Nehemiah writing, Ezra came back, rebuilt the temple. 70 years later, Nehemiah has this chance to counter. He's saying, how's Jerusalem? How's the temple? How's God's people? And so what we see, the first characteristic of a heart of Nehemiah, the heart of a laborer, is he never loses heart. His entire life, the the, the city of God has been in disrepair and he never gets discouraged we know now from the study of this next chapter two we're going to see he's cup bearer to the king 
He's a powerful man. He's a man of prestige and power. He makes sure the king's wine's not poisoned. He is an important person. And he always is thinking, how is God's plan being carried out? He perseveres. This is the first thing we're going to notice in the heart of the labor is he perseveres in faith. He never loses faith. He never loses a heart for the work of the Lord. Look at verse Two, the second part, he said, I asked, and then concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem, verse 3, they said to me, this people who he encountered, said, the remnant here in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And how does he respond after an entire lifetime of this same bad news? When I heard, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is not some religious duty to make God do something. This is broken hearted, love sick. I can't even eat. All I can do is pray, God, your kingdom, your covenant plans, your plan of restoring this earth is in distress. He is broken hearted all these years and he has never lost heart. Man, when I was reading this and studying this, I was terribly convicted. I wish I could lead you from a place of strength. But every time I come in here, I'm like, well, I'm horrible. And that's what I see again. I'm like, after the study of Hebrews, man, I was burned out. I was tired. I didn't even know it. And I'm go blessed to have Ham read, lead three weeks in Leviticus. So I can, I mean, Lamentations. I was listening. In Lamentations. <laughs> Three weeks in Lamentation. I told you I was burned out. For, for three weeks while I had the blessing of just focusing on studying Nehemiah. And he's preaching through Lamentations. And, and where is my heart? It is tired. And I preached to the best church on the planet. Zero opposition. And I'm burned out. I, I hate to admit this because this is so embarrassing. But I, I admit it because, it, 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 like you posted, I need your prayers. Okay, I admit it. I need your prayers. But I'm sitting there, and I, I would Facebook at that season, and, and I would see people post scriptures. I hate to admit this. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, are you serious? That's your pastor. And I'm, I'm like, another scripture verse? Is there anything else? It's because all my friends are godly, and I should be praising the Lord. But I was burned out. Because, and, and that's what's so, so scary about it. To find yourself in that place, to, to, to resist the very thing that you know is what's going to bring you back to restoration. That's scary. And that's where I was as I was preparing for this. And praise God, he's brought me back as he always does. He's restored my heart for the Lord. But we have to cultivate a heart for the Lord. Nehemiah cultivated a heart. We're going to see scripture oozing out of his prayers. He is 
cultivated a heart, knows what the Lord's doing, knows what his plan is, knows his promises. He's reading the scriptures daily, praying. He knows a heart for the Lord comes as we cultivate a heart for the Lord. It comes from uniting ourselves with the one king who brings restoration. And so we must constantly be cultivating a heart for the Lord if we're going to persevere in our labors. How's your heart today? Have you gotten so caught up in your job, maybe it's through blessing. Nehemiah was blessed and put in this position of power and honor. Have you, have you gotten so caught up in this place of significance that you've kind of forgotten about what God's doing around here? God's desire to bring restoration to people's lives. Or have you gotten so pressed down and discouraged from just hard work that you're just tired? I get it. I get it. Unfortunately, I get it too often. (laughs) But the point here is we can't allow that. We have to cultivate it. We have to fight it with every ounce of our fiber and say, Lord, restore me. Give me a heart for what your plans are on this earth. So the first thing we see is a heart for the Lord. He perseveres with a heart for the Lord. The second thing we see is he, he uh, labors in prayer. He labors in prayer. Look at verses 5 through 11. Nehemiah labors in prayer as, he, as we see what comes out of his heart when it's squeezed with this message of bad news. Verse 5 says, 5 through 11, I said, I beseech you, O Lord. He fell to his faith face, he's broken hearted, he's lovesick for the will of God, and he just doesn't eat, he's fasting and praying, he says, Lord, I beseech you, oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God that I've been reading about, that I know what you've done, the great and awesome God who perseveres, who preserves, excuse me, preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him, for those who keep his commandments. Oh, Lord, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. Yes, Lord, they deserved that punishment. We have sinned against you. I and my fathers have sinned. And we have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. But Lord, remember the word which you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me, you said, and keep my commandments and do them... Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell, i.e. restoration. Verse 10. They are your servants. They are your people whom you redeemed out of Exodus, out of Egypt, whom you redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O oh Lord. I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servants successful today 
grant him compassion before this man referring to his king. So here we see Nehemiah laboring in prayer. What kind of prayer? What kind of prayer is this? What's the content of this prayer? What do you see? What is he talking about? This is Bible-saturated, kingdom-oriented prayer. This is Nehemiah opening his Bible and knowing what God is all about and saying, Lord, do it. Do what you promised to do. We fell in the garden. We fell before the flood. We fell after the flood. We get kicked out of the land, and we deserve it because all we do is sin. But praise God, he says, you promised when you spoke to Moses, I've read it in the Bible, you've promised that if we will turn to you, you'll restore us. Now, God, restore us. Keep your word. Be faithful to your promises. Lord, bring restoration to this people. Bible-saturated, kingdom-focused, gospel-oriented prayers. I wonder... This year, if we walked into your community group, if that's what we would have heard. Is that, I mean, you, you know, you were there. Is that the kind of prayer that's going on in our church? Bible-saturated, kingdom-oriented, gospel-saturated prayers. Now, what's the grounds of his hope that these prayers would be answered? What is the ground? Why would he even think that these would be answered? I mean, what is the history of humanity but rejecting God and failing him? Why would we think he would answer restoration prayers? The grounds of his hope is God's faithfulness to his own promises. He says, we're sinners. We're nothing but humble servants of of a gracious God. But God, you have made some promises. The story of the Bible is God answering his promise to bring about restoration. Ultimately through Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, God, you promised to bring restoration. We don't deserve it. We've sinned. I own my sin. I own my father's sin. We deserve everything we've gotten, the punishment of exile. But God, you said if we turn to you, restore us. We don't deserve it, but God, restore us. You know, I have a hard time praying like this. But do you pray for your city? Or do you just get mad that the wrong person's in office? When you see hungry, homeless, parentless people, does it break your heart? When you see people who are enslaved to their particular sin, do you think, oh, if they just knew Jesus... They could be set free. Do you long for that? Have you ever missed a meal for that? Are you lovesick to see restoration brought to families? That's what Nehemiah, he has a heart for the Lord, and we see it oozing out of his mouth in this labor of prayer. Notice how he answers this prayer. You would think, man, this is probably going to be good. Big, flashy something. Verse 2, chapter 2. 
we see how God answers his prayer. It's a very ordinary way, through a very ordinary conversation at work. Nehemiah's doing his secular job. He's serving the king. He's bringing him his wine. He's making sure it's not been poisoned. All the while, praying Bible-saturated, kingdom-oriented, God-honoring prayers. And then one day, God provides precisely what Nehemiah has been praying. He asks, God, give me compassion with the king. And he gets it in verse 2. The king says, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? Why would the king care? He says, this is nothing but sadness of heart. In other words, what's wrong, Nehemiah? God gave the king compassion for his cupbearer. Nehemiah's heart leaps out of his throat, and he answers him respectfully, let the king live forever. But if I may, why should my face not be sad? When the city the place of my father's tombs. It lies desolate. Its gates have been consumed by fire. Why wouldn't I be brokenhearted over what breaks my God's heart? To look around and see destruction. So many people need restoration. How can I just go on doing my job? Like it's not happening, he says. Amazingly, the king responds with favor. What would you request? What do you need? I love what we read next. Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. He's like, oh my, is this really happening? It's kind of like you've been praying to share the gospel with someone, and then it happens, and you're like, oh Lord, what do I say? As gospel laborers, one of our chief responsibilities is to pray Bible-saturated, gospel-oriented prayers that honor God, that take God at his word, and believe that God's going to do what he says he wants to do on this earth, that he will bring restoration to families, he will bring restoration to lives, he will bring restoration to communities, he wants it so desperately, and he's called us to join him. And the most important labor that we have is the labor of prayer. We've prayed for years. From day one, when there was 10 people starting this church in our living room, we prayed, God, we don't want to just plant a church. We want to be a church that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. And guess what? Two and a half years ago, God started answering that prayer. And he raised up Kyle and Susie and Matt and Lucy and Kelly and Clay and Josh and Megan. Eight people, a very large percentage of our little bitty church, rose up and said, I'll move to New Orleans. One of the, if not the darkest place in our country to take the gospel and bring restoration to that city. Are we praying for them like this? Are we praying gospel-saturated, God's promises, 
God's plans, God's will for them in New Orleans. Let me tell you something. You don't go to New Orleans, and as good as David Granger and the band is, you don't put them out and say, hey, we're starting a new church. Right out here in the corner. Granger's there. I'll be preaching. And they'll just be like, and keep right on rolling. That works in Shreveport. That doesn't work in New Orleans. Kyle has learned talking to, he met a sociologist that's studying at the university there. Apparently he's well known, very well known. And he told Kyle, Kyle, do you realize what you've gotten into? He said, people, after Katrina wiped out New Orleans, people are moving to New Orleans to get away from exactly you. They are trying to create a new society without religion, without Christ. It's a whole mindset that is directly opposed to the purposes of God. And they've been there two and a half years. Our job is not simply to just cut them a check and say, I hope it goes well. We, I have been convicted. We have got to step up our labor of prayer for this team in New Orleans. And we need to pray like this. God, you've promised that you want to bring restoration. And we need you to do it. Not because we deserve it, but because this is your plan, your purposes, your promises. Lord, make it happen. Psalm 280 says, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. If we truly desire to see worship restored in Shreveport, in New Orleans, in South Sudan, three places that we have in particular partnered with people and said God has called us to action in these places, then we have got to pray like this. So he perseveres with a heart for the work of the Lord. He labors in prayer. But we see in verses 5 through 10, Nehemiah is not so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. He's not just sitting back and praying and saying, God, do your thing. Apparently, all during the months of prayer and fasting, he was also planning. He tells the king in verse 5, the king says, what's wrong? Well, what can I do to help? He says, send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. Well, and then when the boss says, well, wait a minute now. How long are you going to be gone? Verse 6, he says it, gave, it says he gave him a definite time. And then he goes on to tell him a list of all the supplies he's going to need. In verse 7, he's going to, I'm going to need letters. I'm going to have to get through these territories, and I can't do it without your letters. They may allow me to pass through Judah. In verse 8, oh, I need a letter to Asaph because he's got to give me some timber. I'm sure the king was like, whoa, this guy's thought through this. Verse 8, it was because why did he think that he would have any hope that the king would, would do this for him? Why would he think that the God would, that, that king would grant him anything? Verse 8, it says, it was because the good hand of my God was on me. You see, four months he's been praying and fasting, but he's also been planning and anticipating and expecting the Lord is going to use me as a part of his answer to these kingdom prayers. And I better be prepared 
to take advantage and make the most of every opportunity the Lord sets before me. It's not going to be in some strange, necessarily mystical way out there. It's going to be through an ordinary conversation with my boss at work. And the boss says, what's wrong? I need to go. How long? I'm ready. Let's go. Gives him the details. This touches on the strain we feel between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. There is a strain that we must have there. We cannot eliminate it and just say, well, God's got a plan. He's going to do it, and I'm just praying and let him do it. No, God is also the judge. And he says, now I've called you to participate in the work. You need to plan and be prepared to make the most of every opportunity, and you need to get involved and engage and I'm going to be the one working in and through you. So the laborer prays and the laborer plans. Colossians 4, 2 through 6 tells us the same thing. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us, praying for the apostles, that God will open the door to us, a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in that way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We're no different. We are laboring with the gospel to bring restoration to people's life. We must be praying, planning, and looking for opportunities to make the most of every opportunity that he sets before us. And a lot of times it's going to be very normal, ordinary circumstances. Finally, we see him prompting. He prompts. The laborer prompts others to join the work. In the final verses of chapter 2, we see Nehemiah prompting others to get involved in God's work. 11 through 16, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. He does a nighttime reconnaissance mission. He's riding around the city. Nobody knows he's there. And he's just looking at the devastation, and he's just blown away. Oh, my gosh. This place is in ruins. And these, my brothers, have been living here among this, and they've done nothing about it. They've lost heart. And so in verse 17, he calls them all together and he says, You see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And then he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, well, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to what they say is good work. So Nehemiah prompts them to to action, challenging them, waking them up from their stupor. Look around you. How can you not see the devastation? Gives them a biblical perspective on the devastation. But the hand of God is with us. He gives us what we need to engage the devastation with hope that he will bring restoration. 
In Hebrews 10, we saw, he says, that don't, don't, don't forsake gathering together with the body of Christ. Why? Because that's where we spur one another on in the work. That's where we remind each other of the devastation that's around us, and that's where we remind each other of the glory of the gospel that brings restoration. And that's where we join together in prayer, Bible-saturated, gospel-oriented prayers. And that's where we make plans, and that's where we prepare. That's where we go, and we say, all right, I'm going out this week. And I'm sharing the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed the poor. I'm going to host a camper in my house. I'm going to give money so that there's scholarships so that nobody misses out because of money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and I'm going to invest in the people who are giving their lives to the strip clubs downtown. And I'm going to love them and I'm going to show them the grace of God. And, and this one's going to give them free medical care. And I'm going to go to Nicaragua and I'm going to feed people who live in the dumps and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to give up 11 days of my job's vacation and I'm going to spend thousands of dollars to, to go to South Sudan, Africa, where it stinks and it's hot as a furnace, and I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to take this Friday, this Saturday, and this Sunday, and I'm going to New Orleans. And I didn't have that on the books, and I'm not spontaneous. And I'm going to be spontaneous, and I'm going to New Orleans. And I'm going to pass out cards, and I'm going to set up popcorn machine, and I'm going to put out lemonade, and we're going to put a movie in, and they're going to watch superhero number six. And they're gonna, we're going to watch the team tell them about Jesus. Because when I pray, God, bring restoration, I pray knowing he's going to use me to do it. So Nehemiah showed us we've got to persevere with a heart for the Lord. Don't let anything get us off track or discourage us or distract us or get us where we just don't care or we're not interested. We've got to stay engaged and stay passionate about what the Lord cares about. And we pray and we plan and we prompt each other for this gospel labor that he's called us to. But maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, my life is in ruins. You talk about all this great stuff about telling people about Jesus and restoration. I need restoration. I'll say, praise God if you're admitting that. That's where it begins. Everybody here walked in here with their life in ruins, their walls broken down, their worship distorted, worshiping an idol of anything you fill in the blank. And when we put anything in the center place of our heart other than God, our life is in ruins. We become enslaved to it because it never satisfies. And then we start to bite and devour because we want, but we can't have. And we try harder, and we try harder, and we go deeper, and we go deeper, and we're self-destructing because we're not where God designed us to be. And what I can tell you today is with one heart's repentance and faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus left the palace of heaven and he came into this ruin of a place called earth and he gave his life as the sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice. He took the curse that you and I deserve and he took it on himself 
and he accepted it as his own. And in exchange for us giving him all of our guilt, he gave us his righteousness. He restores proper worship. He puts God back on the throne of our hearts. And that begins the process of rebuilding our lives. And one day, he's coming back to finish it. So if you've heard nothing today, and you're like, I don't know all this talk about reaching Shreveport. Let me tell you this. We want to bring restoration to your life today through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.